0: Good morning. It's December 18th. It's a soggy and miserable morning in New York City. And this is your Indignity Morning Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Skoka, taking a look at the day and the news. ProPublica has opened the week by publishing another Clarence Thomas story. This one describes how, circa 2000, Thomas began complaining where conservative activists could hear him about how underpaid Supreme Court justices were, and how, if Congress didn't give the justices a pay raise, and lift the rule against their taking paid speaking engagements, he might have to think about resigning. ProPublica writes, Congress never lifted the ban on speaking fees or gave the justices a major raise. But in the years that followed, as ProPublica has reported, Thomas accepted a stream of gifts from friends and acquaintances that appears to be unparalleled in the modern history of the Supreme Court. Some defrayed living expenses, large and small, private school tuition, vehicle batteries, tires, other gifts from a coterie of ultra-rich men supplemented his lifestyle, such as free international vacations on the private jet and super yacht of Dallas real estate billionaire Harlan Crow. The story also notes that in this period, his wife Ginny Thomas advanced from working as a congressional staffer to getting paid a salary in the low six figures at the Heritage Foundation. The story includes a truly amazing piece of analysis. George Priest, a Yale Law School professor who has vacationed with Thomas and Crow told ProPublica he believes Crowe's generosity was not intended to influence Thomas's views, but rather to make his life more comfortable. He views Thomas as a Supreme Court justice as having a limited salary, Priest said, so he provides benefits for him. This neatly gets at the underlying structure of Thomas's corruption. In some sense, it may be true that Harlan Crowe was not trying to influence Clarence Thomas's views. He was just making a very large financial investment in making sure that somebody who held those views remained on the court, and didn't quit to try to make more money in the private sector. On the front of today's New York Times, the lead story is Netanyahu vows to keep up fight despite criticism. This after a weekend in which the Israeli military revealed that it had gunned down three Israeli hostages in Gaza while they were waving a white flag, and one of them was calling out for help in Hebrew. The story contains a litany of other military accomplishments by Israel, as flagged by critics of the war, including Pope Francis protesting the killing of two women who were sheltering at a Catholic church in Gaza, where, the Pope said, there are no terrorists but families, children, people who are sick and have disabilities, and nuns. In addition to the Times' writes the French Foreign Ministry condemned the Israeli bombing of a residential building in Rafah that killed one of its staff on Wednesday. The Washington Post reported Saturday that a contractor for the U.S. Agency for International Development was killed in an airstrike last month. The United Nations says 135 of its employees in Gaza have been killed. And the Committee to Protect Journalists said over the weekend it was deeply saddened by the killing of Samar Abu Daka an Al Jazeera cameraman in a drone strike in southern Gaza, his death brings the toll of media workers killed in the war to 64. Inside the paper above the jump on that story is Saving Hostages or Himself, Israelis' Doubts About Netanyahu Grow, which described the prime minister as trying to change the subject over the weekend by denouncing the idea of the two-state solution. At a moment, the Times writes when his grip on power seems shakier than ever. Meanwhile, adjacent to the Netanyahu story on the front page, there's an account of how individual Palestinian families have lost dozens or scores of members in the course of the war, including more than a hundred members of one family, dozens of whom are children, dozens others of whom are women, while one member of the family was linked to the Hamas attack on October 7th. The Times writes, Sami al-Astal, a humanities dean at Al-Aqsa University in Khan Yunis, the southern Gaza city where much of his extended family lives, said some relatives supported Hamas, while others supported other Palestinian political factions or none at all. Some were plumbers or doctors, ordinary citizens. On the left-hand side of the front page, there's an awkward headline on a decent story. The headline is Voter Support for Abortion Faces Limits. It turns out from the story that this does not mean that there are limits to how much voters support abortion rights, but that there is a concerted campaign underway to keep voters from being able to exercise their preference for protecting abortion rights. If the goal of the Dobbs decision, the story says, was to let the will of the people decide the question of abortion, I think the use of if in that context is the Times- issuing a deadpan judgment within the frame of objectivity, after six paragraphs of demonstrating how the facts point in the opposite direction of that proposition. Anyway, if Dobbs was going to let the will of the people decide the question, the Times writes, the question now is whether, in much of the country, the people's opinions will be allowed to count. That is the news. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Indignity to keep us going. And if all goes well, we will talk again tomorrow.